Welcome to Between the Sound, a place to share all things music, art, conversation, inspirations, aspirations, friendships, and where we get into it. So let's get into it. My gorgeous guest today came into my path through a dear friend who just knew we'd get on well, and so we did. This London-born singer-songwriter with Anglo-Trinidadian roots is a jazz vocalist with oodles of creative expression and New York as her home. Described as very moving, an extraordinary talent and a true musician, her style of jazz evokes Andalusian Spain, North Africa, the Middle East and Celtic folk. With an earlier successful career as an international features journalist for magazines and newspapers, she evolved to devote herself to music and over the past two decades has firmly established herself amongst glorious jazz excellence to release five standout albums with a plethora of accolades as London Sunday Times Jazz Record of the Year and NPR Critics Poll. From adding original lyrics to instrumental jazz standards and reimagining classic British rock, her artistry has gone from strength to strength, taking her on multiple sold-out tours of the Philharmonic Halls of Russia, the Kennedy Center Millennium Stage, Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola and the Blue Note, alongside London's Ronnie Scott's Pizza Express and London and Edinburgh Jazz Festivals. This, of course, is simply skimming the surface of this sublime singer and human, and to re-quote Los Angeles bass guitarist Larry Coons, she has great time beautiful phrasing, gorgeous sound, a respect for silence, an emotional connection to the moment, and a wonderful ability to tell a story. She is the real thing in every way. Today, we welcome Tessa Sauter. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start by asking, what did your early years look like? Okay, so one of my earliest memories, actually, is Singing. My mum was always singing, um, you know, around the house, actually embarrassingly sometimes on the buses. I, when we went to see um, Mary Poppins, yeah, she somehow, God knows how, knew all the songs and was singing them loudly. So I guess she started teaching me songs when I was about three. And I, I sang this one song called He'll Have to Go, which was Jim Reeves' song, I think. And it was about how you know, put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone and tell the man who's there with you, he'll have to go. It was all like that. So my mum thought this was hysterically funny because I was singing all these grown up songs. <laughs> so we sang together. My mum is kind of wild, mm. free spirit, let's say, let's say free spirit. And young, I mean, she was 22 when she had me. Okay. Actually, think she probably didn't really want children, but she had them like people did in those days. They had children. She's very intelligent, very talented. She can still sing. She's eight, 90. So those are my earliest memories. I was born in London. I had a little brother. My brother was a year younger than me. As it turned out, I didn't realize it. My dad, who brought me up, was not my dad. I didn't find out until I was 12. Oh. And so there was always this mystery as well in my childhood. Why was I brown and with dark brown eyes and black hair? And my brother was a platinum blonde. All the other children were always saying to me, why are you brown? And when we were together, my brother and I, he's not your brother. And my dad would come into school. I remember him coming in at least once and saying, who was it? Who said that uh, Tessa and Simon are brother and sister? Don't say that they are not. I'm their daddy and they are brother and sister. That was the enduring mystery. Mum, why am I brown? Was I born brown? Was I? Oh, she said, oh, well, you were born brown. And I was like, oh, okay. I get that. 
one day she said, well, okay, when you were born, there was a lady in the hospital next to me and she had this beautiful brown baby. And I just had a very ugly pink baby. So when she went to the loo, I switched babies. <laughs> so that's what I mean about her sense of humor. But it must have been quite hard for her to be answering these questions. In those days, if you were adopted, and I was sort of semi-adopted, people didn't tell. Yeah. My brother was really my best friend because we spent a lot of time alone together because our parents were very busy. <laughs> You know, he was my best friend. We had many, many adventures. Still one of my, absolutely my dearest friends. Then my mother got married again when I was 14. I had my other brother, who I also adore, when I was 15. And he was like my my little baby. I liked changing his nappies and I take him out with me everywhere. I would walk around with him on my hip. And because I loved babies. I've always loved babies. In fact, my son, when he was a little boy, once said to me, I feel funny when you when you were around a baby. And I said, oh, what? what do you feel like? And he said, I have a funny feeling in my tummy and my knees feel funny. And I said, oh, that's, that's jealousy. You don't need to feel jealous. I just think babies are sweet. Oh, and I also went to many, many schools, like 16 schools between the ages of four and 15. Wow, wow, wow. And I had to learn how to get along with people so I actually became the class clown I found out that this was the best way to endear myself I guess to people and make make people laugh all the time that made it a bit easier but it was it was kind of stressful because I'd just get used to everybody and they mum would say we're moving and I'd be like no no and she said oh you'll make new friends and I did always so did you find all those schools gave you a stronger sense of self or did it actually make you lose yourself in all that change oh well in a way it's a little bit like audiences you go to russia or you go to budapest or you go to and i remember the first time i went to russia thinking well now these people are going to understand me they're going to be completely different people but actually no you're the same you just understand who you are because of the way that people respond to you so you get pretty much the same response from each different audience. Yeah. Music essentially was in your life very early. Is that through your mum, through anyone else in your family? How did all that come about? Well, before the age of 12, that was definitely through my mum. And my dad could whistle, but he didn't sing. And I sang all the time. I mean, I, I literally would wake up in the morning and start singing. I was like a bird. I was like a little bird, you know, dawn and it's time to start singing. I just naturally did it. It was a constant thing. And I guess one of the things that my mum was very good at was doing the jumpy uppy downy thing, you know, saying, oh, wow, that is amazing. So everything that I am good at, mum was always really impressed by. So I, I, I mean, I don't do art anymore, but I used to be really good at art. One of my art teachers wanted me to go to the Royal College. I was, you know, I was pretty good. But that's because whenever I drew anything, mum would be like, oh, my goodness, this is, you know, Picasso, the work of a genius. And when I sang, she would she would encourage it and say, wow, you sound great, blah, blah, blah. And although not always, I think she was a little envious of the fact of children getting what she didn't get. Is, is, is it fair to say that your mum was your first major influence? In music... She was absolutely my first influence. And when I was little, when I was about six, mum had this boyfriend who was super rich. And we lived in this very posh hotel in Cornwall for about two months. 
my brother and I spent all our time on our own together while mum was off with her boyfriend doing whatever. And he was five and I was six. And one time he hurt his leg in this elevator, which actually had no doors. And so he had to go to hospital. So I then spent time on my own. I was alone. Uh, I attached myself to this waiter called Kurt, who I had a huge crush on. And then one day when I was walking around the streets of this little village on my own, this lovely lady called Anne Wolf found me and got talking to me and wrote a note to my mum. said, oh, I've, I've met your wonderful daughter. And I was wondering if you'd be all right with you if she could spend some time with me. And mum was like, yeah, great. <laughs> so I moved in with Anne. I lived there. I don't know how long for, probably you know, a few weeks and we were friends. I wrote to her and she encouraged my writing and my reading. So yeah, I would definitely say that the reason I am a singer started with my mom. So where was her musical influence from? What style of music? What was she listening to that filtered down to you? It was very eclectic. She liked a lot of different kinds of music. She got into folk music. That's how I learned the guitar because there was a guitar in the house. And so it was there. So I, I taught myself to play the guitar, accompany myself singing folk songs. And I first heard folk songs from mum who'd got them from this movie, Bar from the Madding Crowd. Then when I was 14, I had to go and live with my dad. But there were these two women. For some reason, I was staying with them or something. And they had all this incredible music. Fairport Convention. And I just would listen obsessively over and over again. I was obsessed with Sandy Denny. And I learned all those songs, a lot unaccompanied, but also playing the guitar with some of them. The thing with singing, as I'm sure you know, or music of any kind, is that it's incredibly cathartic. Like finding out that my precious dad was not my dad. That was, that's a biggie. Nobody even mentioned it. Although he knows I know now. And, you know, we'll assign his letters, your real daddy stuff like that but but even so we've never mentioned it we've never really discussed do you say that was like a heartbreak I think so but you're so young you don't know that your heart is broken I just knew that it was weird and it was difficult it made me feel awkward and unwanted so you discover that you have another daddy a new dad a different culture so mum she told me that my birth father was Spanish and that he died but then she had to, you know, she was worried that I would see him, meet him, maybe look for him. I don't know what she was worried about. So she told me he died in a plane crash. And to add to the drama, she told me that his mother was a flamenco dancer. My mum likes to tell like crazy stories. She even once, I said to mum, lying, you know, she said, lying is good for the imagination. Finding out that I wasn't Spanish, it was quite hard to give up my Spanish flamenco dancing grandmother because that had been... I feel like she still exists in some way. And I still have a mental picture of my Spanish father too. Your mother was right. It does give you a good imagination. <laughs> it does give you, yes, because I had to imagine so much. I did think I was some kind of expert on Spanish music. I don't know why I thought that, but I felt like I knew about flamenco. One of my songs that I wrote when I, I was in the Middle East for a while, I used to call the song that I wrote Middle Eastern. They called it the flamenco song. That's brilliant. You owned all the parts that were presented to you. I did. You didn't know your father from 12, your real father, until later on? or Yeah, I met him when I was 28. I found out he was alive and I met him. Wow, that is yeah. And he was a singer. 
unbelievable singer. Now, that wasn't his job because he also had, well, he had millions of children. He absolutely could have been a professional, incredible voice. It made you feel sad, so deep. And he'd had a lot to process as a child. His mother died when he was a week old. He had, his father was always coming home with new children and saying, so-and-so is moving in with us and so they can go to the local school, you know, because that was the dad. Now, he was quite responsible parent, his father, in that he would take these children in who he'd fathered to his marriage. I guess that would have given him a lot to process. Did you feel a similarity when you met your real father? It made sense. I didn't meet him for a year. My former husband met him first, and he's the one who told me he was black. And then when I actually met him, he did have like a big afro parted at the side, very small ears like I do. And he sang to us in the street. Seeing him, I was like, ah, oh, yes, this is my father felt right. Did you develop an interest in where he was from? I felt a lot of guilt. I felt like I was cheating on my dad who brought me up. So part of me, it was very unfamiliar and, and strange. And also at the beginning, he wanted to keep me secret from his family he had in England. And that felt uncomfortable too, because of course, I've got a bit of a thing about people telling lies. I just can't bear this sort of underhanded thing. So I actually didn't see him much. I saw him a few times and then I didn't see him for another three years or so. And I used to drive past his house and wonder if he was in there. One day I went and knocked on the door and then we had a relationship. It wasn't like a huge relationship because then he got Alzheimer's. So, and he was pretty old. I mean, he was in his 70s. Although I did have a relationship with his sister who lives in New York. I discovered his sister was here, Auntie Anne, and she was amazing talk about enveloping <laughs> and so and by then I was like okay I think I can do this enveloping thing so she totally welcomed me into the family and I learned a lot about Trinidad from her so yeah I learned a lot and felt much more part of the family it'd be wonderful to see that influence perhaps your creativity yeah I mean I believe in being born with talent I mean I, my mum is really good at drawing so it kind of makes sense that I would be good at drawing. My brother, brilliant at drawing. It obviously was an innate thing. He doesn't do anything with it, but he could have. And my father was a singer. My mom, it makes sense. She taught me to sing. She sang with me all the time. But, but my birth father was a singer and he wrote songs. And so do I. So I think there are things that you, you kind of inherit. They're predispositions maybe, you know, you can call them talents. And they're either encouraged or they're not. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's definitely, you know, traits that would um, appear through one's life. And, and as you say, whether they get developed or not is another thing. In terms of music for you, you had a very early start through folk music, essentially. Yeah. Presumably that's where the writing and the subject matter of things may have come about. I think stories, I mean, obviously I sing jazz now, but everything I sing in my mind has a story. And I think that came from in folk music. These stories have a beginning, a middle, uh, things happen, you know, there's a total arc and then an end. They're definitely stories. They're sort of like little Janet frame sort of thing, uh, but they don't have to be full. Like some of her stories were a page. Given that you already had music in your life, who were you listening to aside from your mum's influence? Um, was it things that were in the charts? Was it shows? Yeah. I listened to things in the charts and I, 
you know, was always singing along to stuff. I mean, but the stuff that really moved me was Sandy Denny. She was amazing. You could just resonate with it, you know, without saying what was happening in her life. Somehow I was able to resonate with her sound. That's the other thing I've noticed that any experience that you have goes into this voice. So I really resonated with her. And then Pentangle. Oh my God, I was obsessed with Pentangle. That whole thing, everything they did. So I was always singing those songs. And then I guess when I was about 20, I discovered, or rather I discovered, everyone discovered Joan Armour Trading. I was obsessed with her, sang along all those songs. I didn't really hear jazz as a young person. I mean, there were certain things like Louis Armstrong. I ran away from home when I was 15. I actually ran away from home. I had my son when I was 16. I needed my music. I, I needed singing. I sang all the time. It was so helpful to me. It was life-saving. Yeah, I listened to it a lot. I needed it. Do you recall that time of your life then? Because that's pretty monumental to be so young and becoming a mum. That is in, immense, you know. It's... It was nuts. When I look back, I see, I mean, like my stepson is 24 and I think you with an eight-year-old, I mean, he's lovely and very mature, actually. But that was why, I, I mean, at the time of I got pregnant, everybody was always saying, oh, you're going to be famous. You're a singer. You're going to be a famous singer. Because I, I would take my guitar to school from the age of 13 at lunchtime. All the girls at my girls' school, and they would all cluster around me at lunchtime and request songs, and I would just sit there and sing songs. So everyone was sort of sure that that was what, what was going to happen to me. And probably would have. So I had a lot of life experience, you know, and stuff to process. Did you find music was put on hold, though, when... You had As being a musician, absolutely. I couldn't be a musician, but I was always a singer. I always sang. That was a very normal hippie thing to do. A lot of people I knew were doing that. So we would sit and sing and play the guitar. Or... But it was the, the idea of becoming a musician. It's just out of the question. You know, people have very low kind of expectations. I mean, now when I look back, I think, my God, I'm living in New York City. I'm a singer, a professional singer. If you told me at 15 that, don't worry about Tess, you're going to be okay. You're going to end up in New York. You're going to be married to one of the world's greatest drummers who's also the sweetest doll you could even imagine. Yeah. I mean, I would never in a million years have thought that was possible. I wouldn't have even thought singing it in a bar in Devon was possible. Such low expectations. And I actually had very low self-esteem, which comes from being in an abusive relationship. You, you don't think you're worth anything. You know, I wouldn't have thought I deserved it. And also having a baby, he took up a lot of my time and attention. He was autistic, but he seemed to grow out of it. I don't know how that happened, but he, he didn't speak for a long time. And he had to go to a special school. I went back to school. I did my O-levels in four months. Then I went and did my A-levels in a year. But I then took time off because I needed to be with him while he was at this school. I wanted to be there. But I was determined to be as normal as possible. So you weren't back home? No, no. I stayed away. I was a single mom and everyone was always like, oh, your parents helped. No, I did it. Thank you very much. Good for you. Yeah. And with music, did you end up, given that aspiration wasn't there in the forefront of your mind, did you just plod along doing what you love, as you say, but not necessarily with a plan in mind? 
Yeah, I mean, I used to, I spent a lot of time on my own when I was married. We used to listen to tapes, tape to tapes, Grundig. We had this Grundig tape deck and close my eyes and sing and imagine myself singing in big halls. It'd be all dark and there'd be a big audience and I'd be singing. I enjoyed the dream. It was comforting. So perhaps it would be fair to say it was a deep desire. Yes, I think it must have been so deep, you know, that I wasn't even aware that it was a desire. Yeah. I love the fact that, you know, you can be where you are now, so far removed from where you ever imagined, and yet really the rumblings were always there. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, life waits for you to catch up to it and say, when you're ready, that they perhaps lay dormant in everyone from the beginning. Maybe. I mean, in certain people, with me, I was a journalist for a long time. I worked in um, women's magazines. I worked on Elle and you know, I wrote for Vogue and the Guardian Women's page. And uh, I was a copy editor for many years at Cosmo and Parents, all the magazines, Elle Decoration. And then I ended up writing, came to America and I was illegal. I was cleaning houses for two years. During that time, I was doing my utmost to become a journalist that was supporting herself just from journalism. That is what I became. Your profession was a journalist before even music. Yes. I went to university. I left university. I worked as an editor at an engineering company, editing reports. As an editorial assistant, worked my way up to the chief copy editor. And I left that, went freelance, and I freelance copy edited for Cosmo, Red, L Decoration, L all those magazines. Can you remember how you got into that? Is it all about the writing? I did English literature at university. A friend of mine was working as an editor, so she got me that job. I decided I wanted to work on magazines. In those days, on the Monday was Creative and Media Day at the Guardian newspaper, and there would be all these ads in the Guardian. Very determined, because my job was really tough. Nobody took over your job for you. You were given a project and you had to see that project through and you had to meet the deadline. Be there all night trying to get these damn stuff out. So I thought, I've got to get out of it. I've got to get out of here. Crazy. Even though I adored my colleagues, but the actual work itself was mind-numbing. So yes, I'd get the Guardian. Every Monday, I would get a bunch of tulips and put them on my desk because you have to make where you are nice. It was all before the secret and everything. It was just instinct. I would apply for at least five jobs, whether I was qualified or not. It didn't matter because it was good practice. And somewhere I'd read that you needed to have 100 applications to get one job offer. So once you're in, you're in. So you can do a lot just on your own. I was very determined. I was determined to escape. And each week, you know, my letters would get better and better. So then I left to do freelance. I worked as a copy editor and I was good. I was quick. So everyone would like me because I've been to 16 schools. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> so they'd keep hiring me back. You've got daily rate. I think you got £100 a day or something. It was good money. In the time that you were in that profession in general, it was a, a lengthy period of time. Did you see it as a, an expansion of creativity because, you know, from the drawing to that particular profession to music, was it just a chance to try these extensions of creativity? Were you passionate about pursuing Oh, I was such a passionate journalist. I would have really good ideas. 
Because I remember that editor saying to me, well, can you send me your rough draft? And I was like, no way. I don't send in rough drafts. My copy goes in as written. And I'm very strict about that. I'm, my, a lot of my journalism is up on my, on my website. But I don't do it anymore. I did an interview with Alanis Morissette. Okay. And it was huge amount of work. I'm very thorough. I had read everything there was to be read about her. I'd watched thousands of interviews from her whole life. She was probably pretty shocked when she spoke to me because when I was a journalist, people would say, oh, you read the book? You saw the movie? You know, I'd be like, yeah, why? And, but then as a writer, when I wrote my book, anything, anything I can do, you can do better. I was interviewed by people who hadn't read the damn thing. So when I was doing the piece on Alanis Morris, then I was thinking, yeah, part of me loves this, but it takes over your whole life. It's so huge. If you're going to do a decent job, it's a bit like giving birth. You know, first of all, I'm pregnant. Isn't it fabulous? You get the beginning. You're like, oh, Alanis Morissette, I can't wait. You know, I didn't really even know her. But then we'd have the horrible grind of writing, you know, the pains. <laughs> and then and then at the end, when you're trying to get the head out, no, it's not funny. Very painful. It's not like having a poop, like everybody tells you. Once you've got the head out, there's this little bit where the body is bumping against you and out, and then boom, you've got the baby in your arms. And that is the final bit of the journalism. But the head part, when you're writing an article, is long. Push the head. Push the head. Yeah, just keep going with that head. You can do it. So would you say uh, you are your harshest critic? I think so. And I actually think that's probably... A mixture of a good thing and not a good thing. I did go through this phase at the beginning of my singing where I just got terrible stage fright. And that was part of being your own harshest critic, but also would prevent me from being my best. My voice would be quavery and I'd be shitting myself. And, and sometimes I would say to say to the guys, am I in tune? You know, to be like, yes, you're in tune. You need to get a grip. Once somebody actually told me that, and I really, I don't think you realize that you're actually good, you know. It's good not to think you're good, because if you think you're good, then I have noticed there are people who think they're great who actually are not great. Probably safest, the safest to assume the worst. <laughs> how, how did that meticulousness to detail, the drive and the perseverance of the work involved in journalism lead you into what you originally started with? which was music. They're very different. One of them is all planning, careful, working. Music is, when I'm in the moment, I mean, not when I'm planning it or if I'm writing something or I'm coming up with an arrangement or something like that. But if I'm actually performing, it's as if I'm not even there. And I have no idea how I am. I have no idea how I sound. I don't know if I'm in tune. I don't know anything. I just don't know. It's a wonderful movie to see as a performer, Billy Elliot. And there's a scene in Billy Elliot where the ballet school auditioning him says, why do you want to be a dancer? And he says, because when I'm dancing, something along the lines of when I'm dancing, I'm invisible. Oh, my God. But that is exactly. It gives you a chance to have. It's almost like taking a holiday from, from yourself. yourself. Yeah. It's like meditating or something. I don't really know. But yeah. So I would say they, they didn't feed each other. I became a singer, really, because my lesbian roommate was having an, well, a relationship with a woman who had been in a lesbian band called Two Nice Girls, and they were great. She was visiting from L.A., and we, we used to love to take visitors to the local karaoke bar, In-N-Out Burger. So we went, and I sang Crimea River, and somebody in the audience had gone home after I'd sung and called the bar 
and asked to speak to me. And I was like, what? What? Nobody knows I'm here. How could there be somebody on the phone? And it was this guy. He asked me for a date. <laughs> okay. So we used to meet every Sunday and go and hear music. And he would say, you are really a really great singer. You should be singing. And I'd be like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And I, I really didn't want to. And then we became a relationship. And when we moved to New York together, I remember we went to hear somebody at lunchtime. It was a group, a band playing downtown. And Benny, famous trombone player, he was playing in that band. And it was a thing they used to do, like a jam. My boyfriend went over to them and said, can my girlfriend sing? So I sang, East of the Sun, you know, whatever it was. And they played it for me and I sang, terrified out of my wits, but able to sing. And then as we were leaving, the trombone player, Benny, came over and said, Miss, 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 you know, he chased me out of the floor and he said, you are very talented. That, that was really beautiful. All that sort of stuff was a bit like water off a duck's back. It was like it didn't go in. Still a bit like that. There are certain things that are hard to get in, I think maybe because they feel too big. Did you feel with any, you know, reaffirming from others that you believed it a little bit more, that you had something to give, that I need to devote some time to this. I know I've been in this long profession, but I owe it to myself to see what, what I've got. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I just knew I wanted to be singing out. I didn't have any ambitions. My ambition, I guess, was to have a gig in a cafe, you know, which I, I got. I'd made a demo to get gigs in cafes of jazz songs, Peacocks, which I used the same one, put it on my first album. The creator has a master plan. Uh, Insensitives, in my dreadful Portuguese accent. And Daydream, I think. And I sent one to Sony. I don't know what I was thinking. One day around Christmas, sometime around Christmas, I was at my best friend's house, you know, checking my messages at home. And I had a message, this guy with a French accent, he'd be, oh, this is Yves Bouvet from... Columbia Records, and uh, we have heard your demo, and we think it is fantastic, and we would like to speak to you. I just thought it was my ex-boyfriend having a joke, because he was brilliant at accents. He could even do women. Anyway, I went home, and I was a single girl in those days, and so I had caller ID, which was a single woman's, you know, <laughs> have to have that. I saw that there was Columbia Records calling. Anyway, he kind of pursued me in this weird way. And I was just not ready. I, I said to him, no, I'm not ready. He said, we want to come and hear you. When can we come and hear you? I said, no, I'm not ready. I'm just, I'm absolutely not ready. Okay. And I'd only been singing like a year, literally, not even. He said, yours is the most profoundly moving voice I've heard in the last 10 years. He said, I'm sure you know what a big deal that is. I, I just was like madness. It didn't make any sense to me. So anyway, he came to my first ever listening room gig. Prior to that, I'd been playing in a sports bar. I'd had four gigs in my life and it was full because all my friends from, that I'd made through singing in open mic, but we all would go and support each other. And so they were all in the audience. And so I guess was this guy hiding away in the back. And uh, he called me and he said, I found you curiously slightly less moving in person. I said, well, that's funny because I did that demo in a morning. You know, he just dashed it off. I think he maybe didn't like my, he felt like I had an attitude, but um, he disappeared. He ghosted me. So if you're listening to this, Yves Bouvet, don't do it to anyone else because it was so painful. 
because I don't know him. Who knows what, you know, but it really hurt. And uh, I was terrified. I just thought, my God, because it was it had been a good gig. And there'd been people there, including my Uncle Ken, may he rest in peace. He saw me for the first time that night. I spent probably another year absolutely terrified every time I had a gig. just was debilitating. And I could not sing at my best. Because he had an idea of what he would have wanted, you know. And he was right. He was actually, to tell the truth, if you're listening, you were right. <laughs> At that time, I was all kind of, I was so new to being a musician. I mean, I didn't know what the hell. And I felt like that was what jazz musicians were supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to get up there and let the band, you know, have half an hour solos. I wanted to be like a disappearing singer, like a flower of Purim type. And I didn't want to be all about me. I wanted it to be about the band and the music. And I would just be part of the band. And that's what I said to him when I wrote back. And I, I guess that's not what he had in mind. And I was more, yeah, no, no, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that's right. At the same time, it made me think, wait, maybe I maybe I could make a career. Maybe I could actually be a singer, a professional singer at Columbia Records. Thought my voice was so great. So it did two things. It One made me so terrified that it was debilitating. But on the other hand, it also gave me a certain level of confidence. When I was singing in the shower, I was singing extra confidently. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, man, Columbia Records thought this. You persevered. I persevered partly for the people around me that were supporting me. I really felt like I was going to let people down if I gave up. Yeah, no, that's understandable. And. Um well, you're well into the jazz scene by that stage, and that was the genre you were sticking with. Yes. Is, you carried on to write albums, or was that way down the line? Uh, well, I made my first album in 2004. I had one original song on it and one lyric that I'd written. I used the demo that I had made in 2000, and I added a few songs that I recorded in 2002 and put it out in 2004. So that came out in 2004. And I did a sort of an early Kickstarter. I got people to buy it in advance. Second one was a Venus album, a Japanese label. They put out my second one in 2008 with more standards. Essentially, you were having relative success in the sense of releasing, making and releasing albums and having them released for you which is a huge achievement in itself yes well the first one i did myself okay and I, also i had a manager he was kind of holding off on putting out that first album because he felt like it needed tweaking you know and i had a friend kind of macho if you like she was a musician too about what goes on in the studio and she said no you can't do drop-ins that's not Fair, that's not real, you know, which is actually ridiculous because bloody well everyone does drop-ins. But well, as he used to me, look, Nora does them, uh, Kurt does them, everybody does them. But I was like determined, no, I'm not going to do drop-ins. I'm going to have to re-sing them. So I wasted a shitload of money on redoing things on the album. And also looking back, really holding up Bill, who was ready to present me. So anyway, after a year, I was so impatient. I left, I mean, nicely. He was very sweet and he still used to come to my gigs in LA. Anyway, Venus, my agent, said to me that this great club kind of entrepreneur um, who'd had me perform at Dizzy's a bunch of times said, get Tessa to send a demo or whatever to Mr. Haro of Venus Records. I was like, eh, no, I'm not really. Why would I, you know, why would I do? I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> anyway, for some reason, I think I have a lot of 
you know, unresolved kind of pushing things away-ishness. Then I started seeing Billy. One day he came home and he had a, a record made by another singer on the same label. It was great. You know, he'd been playing on it. I was like, what? I didn't know it was like this. I had no idea. And so I got in touch with Todd again. Like, yeah, I'd love to. So boom, I got to make an album for them. And it was mostly standards. And he'd asked for certain songs. And I got together with one of my early favorite pianists, this guy called Kenny Werner, who wrote this great book about process and ego. Very, very helpful book. He was on it. And great bass player called Jay Lenhart of Joel Fromm on saxophone, Billy on drums. So I made that record and he was very happy with it. I, of course, hated it. After the recording, I mean, I came home, I was desperate, I was in tears, crying and thinking, I'm no good, I'm terrible. And, and <laughs> Billy called me. I was crying. I was like, I'm terrible, I'm no good. I can't. She said, what? He said, I was just ringing to say how great the session had gone and how proud I was. And I was like, what? Because my standards are insanely high, I guess, probably when it comes to other people too. So if I say someone is amazing, they really are amazing. Do you remember how you felt uh, going into the studio to record standards or not, a proper album, a proper recording? Did you feel confident, capable? For my own album, when I went in, I did feel pretty confident, surprisingly. But the post-production on that album was so difficult that I, I think it maybe made me feel less confident. So when I went into this, this new one, I was a little nervous because I was playing with all these amazing, like famous musicians that I'd sort of heard of. It was only my second ever recording, and it was a good uh, six years since I'd made a, that recording, gone into the studio. And uh, I really didn't know how things worked. Like, if I made a mistake, I'd stop everyone. Oh, no, wait, no, no, stop, stop. I didn't realize that you're supposed to let them carry on. And you're going to do your drop-ins later on. You trust that they're going to be able to do their thing. Afterwards, I was like, wow, that was amazing. You know, I didn't have to do anything. It was, un you know, no torture, no ripping hair out, nothing. It was all taken care of by somebody else. So I did love that part of it. But then my next album, the one I did for Matema Records, I actually took Sue, my friend, with me as co-producer just to sort of hold my hand. And that I enjoyed more, that process. Each album that comes along, do you see that there is a tangible difference in how you approach the completion of it? Or is it new every time? Let's see what happens. This is what we're doing. This is who's involved kind of new every time in that way that it's always new when you go on the bandstand. You don't know what you're going to do. You know what the song is. You don't know how you're going to do it. It's a little bit like that. And lately I've been doing sort of themed in a way, like my, my album Beyond the Blue was all classical repertoire, but turned into jazz by these unbelievable musicians. I mean, I can't even believe I got to play with Steve Kuhn, who's probably my, he might even be my very favorite. And I think I'm allowed to say that because I know him, but more than Bill Evans or anyone. I mean, unbelievable. Are you generally approaching the musicians that you want on that particular album? No. Funnily enough, on that one, I had written to Mr. Hara, producer and owner of Venus Records, to get some copies of the album that we did, Nights of Key Largo. And I said, oh, I've been listening to Steve Kuhn's version of Chopin's Prelude in the Minor. Unbelievable. I just can't stop listening to it. And I've actually... I don't know if I said I'd started writing a lyric to it. I may have. And he wrote back and he said, oh, you've just given me an idea for your next album. All classical repertoire, all your lyrics with Steve Kuhn. What? Yes. Are you proud of it? It was a great idea, his idea. And I, I am proud of the lyrics that I wrote. 
I did nine lyrics and then three of the songs were already classical. Ravel's The Lamp Is Low and Borodin, two Borodin, maybe even three Borodin, but two, two I wrote lyrics to. Do you find that you collaborate? Do you know what? Collaborating is new to me and I've done it and I always love it. It's so easy. I mean, in, if I do songwriting, quite a few people have asked me to help them write songs. So they'll come to me with what they want the song to be about. And then I will work with them and help them write the song. It's really fast and clear. Collaborating with musicians, I'll write an arrangement. My arrangements are very kind of complex. So I'll write that out and then I'll give it to my guys. And every time I hear it being played, depending on who I'm playing it with, it's a little different every time. I love that it's loose. I love that they they are going to do their thing and they're all great. So they're listening and they're just sensitive musicians. Following on from the looseness, I have to ask, what about solos? Are they permitted to be as long as they can be? Absolutely. Well, the thing is, most people are pretty sensitive and they wouldn't want to take like a five chorus solo because they're doing it with a singer. They know that the audience is really there to hear the words because they like singers. I mean, a couple of choruses is great. Some of my songs, I say there's no solos on this because that's not a story, but I really love to hear them solo. And I especially love it when they, when I've written the song. Then I'm like, wow, let's hear, you know, I want to hear what you got to say. To me, I feel like I'm just the singer and, and then the jazz bit, they take over the jazz. <laughs> what would you say jazz means to you? Freedom, you know, that you can do different things, you can improvise the melody, the words to an extent. I think Sheila Jordan, who's, who's one of my mentors, she always felt that it's very important to honor the songwriter and their lyric and their tune. So the first time through, you should honor what they've done. But then after that, <laughs> game on you know do what you yeah. want so but she scats and everything I don't really like scatting I don't particularly like hearing scatting much I mean sometimes it depends who's doing it when I I was a student of Mark Murphy's he was my mentor for four years and he used to make me scat because he felt like I needed to be dirtied up I was too safe too perfect you know and that is good to to be able to do it to know that you can take chances, but you don't have to necessarily do it on gigs. That's my view for me. Mentors, you mentioned a couple of them now. Is there one that's sort of prominently persistent through your life? I mean, Mark, of course, he was a great mentor. Taught me a lot of stuff. I mean, he said, you know, you can't teach someone how to be a good singer. It's really just tweaking, like driving, you know. You're not veering off to the left or the right or whatever. You're just sort of like doing that. So he gave me a lot of confidence believing in me, encouraging. I used to say he was like the sun, you know, burning sun. And Sheila Jordan is like the moon, so they're quiet, pulsating, quiet force. She's a nurturer. She would give you ideas, you know. She'd say, well, why don't you try putting the verse on the end instead of at the beginning, that kind of thing. She said, take this about the wrong way, but I, I just assumed we weren't going to be as good as you were. <laughs> I've no idea why. You know, that kind of thing. So that also gives you confidence, even though it's a little odd, but it was... And then I had this mentor called Mansour Scott, who not famous, but kind of should have been. He had 17 years of being addicted to heroin and been in prison for seven years, breaking rocks in the South. He was very wise, 
I remember I had a gig, the first time I had a gig at this place called Sweet Rhythm, uh, which used to be Sweet Basil. I had said to the manager at the door, oh, um, this guy's on the door. He's very important. He, he's my guru, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was kidding. I mean, that's what I called him, my guru. He thought he was really my guru. A new one for the rider. <laughs> exactly. Special treatment for the guru. I was his grasshopper, you know. He was so wise. I spoke to him every day for many, many, many years, you know, for all the years that I knew him until he had a stroke and then he, he lost his speech. He was an amazing singer and I used to watch him sing and I couldn't put my finger on what it was that made him so amazing. And he gave me lots of things. Every song I wrote, every lyric I wrote, he was the first person to hear it. And it was hard actually to, excuse me, it was quite hard to, I thought, oh my God, now when he died, what am I, who am I, once he lost his mind even, how am I, or his ability to respond, who am I going to sing these songs to? Who's going to tell me they're good or not? Because if he didn't think it was right, he'd say, oh no, I think you should go back to the drawing board on that one, kind of. He was just like super honest, super encouraging as well. And always saying to me, you know, keep going, keep going. Because actually, as a journalist, that's one of the things I did learn. You know, I didn't instantly become a, a journalist. I spent years cleaning houses, two and a half years. And I actually, looking back, it's not actually that long in comparison to the, the music thing. But I would write letters, pitches to editors and, you know, not hear back or hear another no. Or, you know, it took a long time to get kind of recognized. To the point where people would call me. I mean, I didn't call anyone about doing a Lannis Morris set. They called me. But that took a long time to get to that stage. Even after I was published in major publications with ideas that I'd had, it still took a while. Okay. And being a musician is even worse. I mean, there are more variables. You know, I see a lot of people fall by the wayside. But as he would always say, no, no, you've got to just keep going. You are doing it. You're doing it. He was very good at helping you have a proper perspective you know realize how lucky you are to actually be doing like have five albums you are lucky that you actually encountered someone like that I have to say you know as a fully grown woman um the concept of a mentor has only entered my life you know in recent years I was hearing this word everywhere and I thought wow it sounds like everybody's got a mentor like should I <laughs> Pretend they have mentors. They're not really mentors. You're like, you hardly knew the man. What are you talking about, mentor? You know, they're attaching themselves to people who are famous. But Mansell deserved to be famous. But yeah, mentoring and mentoring, I think, is very important. Like I, I love when people come to me and they want my advice and they want my help. I realise I, I give it a lot. I must be perceived as knowing something. Have these people asking my advice about something? But I, I always give it, and I'm. I'm happy to, to give it. For me, it's more, I, I give advice more on emotional stuff. Thing number one, calm down. Encouraging, I think. But I know like who journalists are and I can advise on who you should get in touch with or who were the good PRs and who were the best radio PRs, that kind of thing. Because I've had these experiences, different experiences with different albums. So I think I know, you know, or who's a good engineer, who's a great vocal engineer, that kind of thing. You know, like you said, that that earlier version of yourself not believing it, you know, is that something you sought out? So all the mentors that you had along your way, or did they gravitate towards you? With Mansour, who was classified, my first mentor, he was just another singer. I, I heard him sing. I was like, oh, my God, this guy is amazing. And he was one of those people who everybody really liked. We became friends. 
I just saw a lot of him, admired him hugely, and, and wrote a bio for him and encouraged him, actually. So I guess I gave and he gave back. We did have this very, yeah, very special relationship with Mark. I had, I went to the Manhattan School of Music. I got a scholarship to go to Manhattan School of Music to do jazz. And I only stayed a semester because I didn't really get what I wanted from it. I wanted to learn how to play the piano and not to be a pianist, but to kind of get that sort of theory stuff. But they didn't do it in the semester that I entered. I entered in the spring semester. So I was like, they're learning how to sing. I already sang utterly remedial in the theory and all those classes. I didn't know anything. And then I was kind of advanced in the vocal classes. So I left because I met Mark prior to meeting him. I had chosen to do a paper on him. And so I had called him and interviewed him. Then he came and did a workshop at the school. It was bizarre. It was like we knew each other. He knew me already. He felt like he knew me already. And I also felt like that. A couple months later or less, a friend of mine, another singer, had said she was running his workshop. He's giving a masterclass. Do you want to come? So I went. I sang around midnight. And uh, he said, why did you hold that note so long at the end? And I said, you're right. I was showing off how long I could hold a note. <laughs> it was just a perfect note, you know, to give. Yeah, that's not why you sing. You know, that's not the point of singing. The point is to tell the story, not show people how good you are at holding long notes. And then my friend left doing it and she called me and she said oh mark has asked if you would take over the class because he really likes your singing and would like to run his workshops in exchange for free lessons so i did that for four years and i know he was kind of devastated when i left i passed it on to someone else because it's very time consuming i wasn't enjoying my lesson i loved him but the pianist was very noty she didn't do that when he was accompanying Mark. And I was too weedy to say, you know what, you're playing too many notes. I need more space. You know, I've been doing And I was getting busy with my own career. But I know he missed it because I did, I did everything. It was a real labor of love. I mean, I actually loved doing it. I loved working with him. And I loved him so much that sometimes it would give me a pain in my heart. Memorable performance. Is one stand out in your mind right now? I think the first time I ever sang to a really large audience in Russia. I had taken my American band, so it was like bringing a band with me from the US and playing at a place called the International House of Music in Moscow. I was exhausted. It was like a nine-hour flight on Aeroflot, which in those days was just the worst. I mean, the plane was literally rattling all the way there. It was freezing cold. I was sitting next to this poor guy who was absolutely freezing. I was shivering the whole time. I think I gave him my little thin blanket to add to his own thin blanket. Everyone was exhausted. We had had a shitty rehearsal. But then the audience does this magic thing, you know. But anyway, I was in the dressing room and I was sort of mournfully looking in the mirror, putting on my makeup. And the girl came in who was the assistant to the venue. And I said, is there, is there anybody there? Because I just thought, nobody's going to be there. Who knows me? And she said, oh, yes. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I went out. I was expecting maybe there'd be like 100 people, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, I walked out and there were like 1,500 people. As soon as I walked out, they were all cheering and everything already. And I was like, oh my God, this cannot be. It was just nuts. band was amazing. I don't even know how they did it. Afterwards, the guy who was playing violin on the gig 
apologize. He said, I owe you an apology. And I said, really, why? And he said, because when we first, when I first got this gig, I didn't realize what, what it was going to be like. And he said, but it was amazing. He loved it. That was definitely, I say, one of my first memorable gigs. If it's a good gig, it's, they're all memorable in a way. Best and worst advice. Best advice I ever had was probably Mansour, who said, just be you. Don't try to be a jazz singer. Just be you. Do you. Tell your story. And I think that applies to absolutely bloody well everything in life. Absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, the worst piece of advice was my girlfriend. I wish I hadn't listened to her about not letting someone else tweak that first album. Because who knows, if I'd got that album out on a label then, I think it would have been probably a very good and it would have been great for it to have had more attention. But on the other hand, I also feel a little bit like, well, you know, things happen as they're supposed to. And best advice for someone else? I think we really know everything ourselves, but that sometimes we get involved with other people and want their advice when it might not be a good advice, or we want their opinion, it might not be the right opinion. So I would say try... Try to be your own advisor because deep down you probably do know. Don't ask for permission. You don't need permission. You're allowed. I like that. 22 years from the start to now from music, what's the main difference of who you are as a singer now to who Tessa was starting out 22 years ago professionally? Your voice, your artistry, your direction. I really believe that I've learned so many life lessons, spiritual lessons from being a musician that I personally would not have learned as a journalist. The closest thing I can say being a musician is being a parent because it's that same kind of thing that you take care of and honor, sort of treasure. It's like a different, it's like a separate entity somehow that you're taking care of. You feel like you're, it's almost like you've been given charge of this little baby and you better take care of it. That's kind of what music is like. So then you're always being reminded, no, Tessa, it's not about you. No, no, it's not about getting cheers. It's not about, you know, filling rooms. I mean, great when that happens, but what if it doesn't happen, you know, it's, or it's not about only getting great reviews. It's not about a bad review. It's about something much bigger, much deeper, much more spiritual, much more godly almost. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And you likened it to parenthood, meaning really it's a major schooling. It really isn't it? Don't we learn from our children so much? With music in particular, I find it so beautiful because it's not a school in the traditional sense. The schooling of life, which essentially is in, in musical terms here, you never know everything and that's life. Yeah, well, and you never will. You never will. You're gonna, you're never gonna get to the end of it. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> if I'm lucky enough to live to 100, which I suspect I won't be, There'll be like another life maybe where hopefully I'll get to start off where, where I left off. So hopefully I'll get to uh, develop and develop and develop. And then I can come back in a lovely young body and start when I'm 10. <laughs> of course, we know that's not the point. What would you say is next for Tessa? I'm working on an album and I've written some lyrics to it. I sang them to my girlfriend the other day and she burst into tears and said, I want to feel like that about somebody one day. So... 
I was like, okay, good, good. You know how it is when people cry. You're like, it's kind of a lot of work. I'm nothing much. I'll just try and do an EP. I don't know. Do people do EPs now? But that's my plan. You know, in terms of dream venue that you would love to, you mentioned Royal Albert Hall. Dream venue. Wow. I would love to do a huge venue. It would be amazing. Yeah. So the Royal Albert Hall would just about hit the spot. Queen Elizabeth Hall would be lovely then. I think it's quite apt, you know, a full circle moment coming back. It would be, yeah, it would be pretty amazing. I mean, I love England and I really miss it. No place like home, Dorothy. No, but, but really, but I mean, don't you feel like that? Because when I went to Australia, I went, it's Listen. the most beautiful place I've ever been. Yeah. Physically, people are lovely and the light, oh my God, the light in Sydney is like just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's like Venice. You can't take a bad picture. Yeah. Most beautiful place. And so living is so easy. The living is easy. It, it really is, isn't it? And the food, I mean, that's the other thing with Australians. They've got this thing where they're going to do something. They're going to do the best. You I have to say, the part of the schooling of, you know, music I was talking about earlier really teaches you, I guess, anything that pulls you away from where you love to be is a real testament to the love of what you're doing. Because exactly. I, I love it. Before we go, I've got one more question. The name of the podcast, Between the Yes, Sky. I love the name of the podcast. It, I thought about it and I thought, well, it makes me think of what's between the ears, which is intelligence and thought and... It's about the intelligence, if you like, of music. Like it can be this force which has its own intelligence in a funny sort of way. That's what that title conjures up. Music is so interconnected. All the different types of music are interconnected. So it's almost like between the sounds is like talking between ourselves. I mean, there's so many ways you could take it. But yeah, I feel like it's a bunch of things. What about you? What made you choose it? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got you. <laughs> For me, definitely, it's the silence, you know, that... Uh, yeah, that's huge. I forgot to mention that. And that's Miles Davis, isn't it? Yeah, that is, actually, Mansoor, I remember telling me that. Listen to this Billy Holiday song. Just hear how many times there's actually no sound happening at all. In itself, it's kind of a force that can be frightening, you know. As a singer with a band, I find I respect the silence and the space for musicians to fill or not. I think things like you said are always bubbling underneath and they're just kind of directing us. It's the, the resonating thing. It's the guitar string across the room. Yes. <laughs> the E string. I love like, that. Oh, all our little E strings, we're all finding each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's another version of uh, Springsteen's band, not the E Streets, the little E Strings. Yeah, the E Strings, the E Strings. Yeah, we should definitely do an album about it. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Tessa, I have loved this conversation. I'm so glad we got Yeah, it. me too. Yeah. It's really fun. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks again, though. Okay, thank you. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. For more of the good news, head on over to tessasauter.com.